Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs radio show, where we highlight everyone from the top industry leaders to startups and farmers that make it all possible with Chef Jean Blom and photojournalist Amaris Pollock. And welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. And I am so excited to be able to bring on Jackie Summers, who is the founder of Jack from Brooklyn and also Sorrel Liquor. Jackie, welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. It is a pleasure to spend some time with you. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling quite well. Uh, a little bit extra rested because, you know, I spent my weekend, you know, doing something that you might have a little bit of information from because I was eating and drinking. The good stuff. Yes, the good stuff. It was the good life (laughs) all weekend long because it was a wedding. So it was a a lot of celebrations. But um, we are here to celebrate you and what you do. Um, So let our listeners know how you got started in this business and, you know, your your origin story, if you will. So uh, the super short version of the story is in in 2010, I had a cancer scare. My doctor found a tumor inside my spine the size of a golf ball. He said, you have a 95% chance of death and a 50% chance of paralysis. If you leave, you should, you should organize your paperwork. I lived. Yay! But the experience will adjust your perspective. I consider what happened a gift because I got to look at my priorities in life and see what really mattered to me. I had 25 years invested in corporate America. What I really want to do, Amaris, is day drink. I, <laughs> I just want to be around interesting people in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week. I want to have great conversation over great food and beverage, and I wanted to monetize it. And when I couldn't think who was going to pay me to do that, I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll launch a liquor brand. And I took this beverage, what I'd been making in my kitchen. It's of Caribbean descent. It's been it's been around for centuries, called Sorrel, S-O-R-R-E-L. And I became the first person to ever make a shelf-stable version of it. This is the part where I jokingly say, I'm not a food scientist. 623 failures in my kitchen to get the recipe right. Wow. Yeah, uh, lots of, I mean, it's a joke, I tell. If you think you have an idea that's so good, no one's ever thought of it before, it's probably a terrible idea. (laughs) This is probably a reason why no one has done this before. Uh, But but yeah, I I was going to say, but perseverance, you obviously created something that has taken off because you've gotten a lot of accolades for for creating this. Um, But before we actually get, deeper into Sorrel, I wanted to just kind of jump back and, you know, give a nod to not just your history, because, you know, obviously you were in corporate America, but you were in um, corporate America under like as a publishing executive. Yes. And you also have a lot of accolades because, I mean, one of the, the things that I do outside of just this radio show is I'm a writer. You have written for some of the the prestigious um, food magazines that are read by like thousands upon millions of Americans on a regular basis. And you've gotten awards for writing articles in those. It's a joke I tell. Liquor is my side gig. (laughs) I'm a a writer waiting for my career to kick off. (laughs) 
Well, I, I feel like your your career has kicked off because you've gotten nominated for um, a James Beard Award. You've also had, you know, the top 100 influential people uh, awarded to your, you know, your history. So we're not looking or hearing from somebody who's just a novice, like, in, in the game. You, you've had your foot in the door in the culinary industry for a while. So... If we're going to be serious, the truth of the matter is I'm actually a community organizer slash activist who happens to own a liquor brand. I will always first and foremost be somebody who is trying to stand up for the rights of marginalized communities. Sorel and everything else that we do behind that is a vehicle by which we can actually really make those points and drive them home. We are better together than we are apart. We are. And it takes a, a whole entire community in order to help lift up the like every individual that's out there. And one of the things that um, I read on you is that your mission is to tell stories of marginalized peoples in their own voices. So how how do you go about doing that and how do you express yourself um, in your own community, in your own words? I have interviewed chefs and other uh, culinary individuals of note in our industry for about the last half dozen years, maybe more, uh, with the idea that if we actually tell these people stories, we can sort of level the playing field. There's power in words. Uh, words have great ability to move not just tens, but tens of millions of people if the platform is big enough. So I've tried to make it my business to tell people stories, not in my words, but in their own, so that we can see, A, it really is in everyone's best interest, both from the sheer point of being able to consume delicious things, and B, from the perspective of making a world where people are rewarded equitably for their intellectual and uh, emotional contributions. That's a world I want to live in. And to the extent that we can, that I can level the playing field, I will always try to see what I can do to speak up in behalf of ethnically uh, marginalized groups in, in, in behalf of women, in behalf of the queer community, in behalf of people who are experiencing some sort of religious persecution, in behalf of the disabled. Like, this is, this is about all of us. It's about all of us every single time. And that is... Beautiful. I love that you you do that. Um, now, I will jump back into your own history, which is your lineage is um, stems from Barbados, which is where you were introduced to this by your grandparents, right? So if you went back thousands of years, Africans were using hibiscus for medicinal purposes. It's got more vitamin C than most citrus fruit. It's full of antioxidants, antimicrobials, antifungals. It is a natural anti-inflammatory. It's great for heart and skin health. It's a natural aphrodisiac. So this was part of, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> for our listeners out there, you didn't see, but my reaction was like, really? <laughs> uh, I, I know guys who do not drink Sorel, but keep it in the house because their love life improved. 
Uh, so this is part of African ceremony and tradition for thousands of years. It's why across the across the Afro-Caribbean diaspora, there's an almost epigenetic memory of something that we call the red drink. It comes from hibiscus flowers. Flash forward to around 500 years ago and the transatlantic trade starts. And now bodies and spices are being stolen from the continent of Africa and shoved into the bottom of boats to be traded in ports of sale in the Caribbean. And when I tell you that they tried to strip the identity of these individuals, they broke up families, they physically kidnapped people, they raped them, they beat them, they forced them into servitude, they changed their names, they changed their language, they changed their religion. They did everything that they could to destroy their identities. And somehow this cultural identifier, the red drink, survives. Yeah. There are no recipes for it for centuries because the people who were making it weren't allowed to read or write. If you didn't watch your grandmother or grandfather make this, you didn't know how to make it. <laughs> My grandfather was a chef. He and grandma arrived in New York City, in Harlem, New York, in 1920. He taught mom and mom taught me. So this is something I've known all my life. It's something I grew up with. I made a version of it in, in my kitchen for friends and family for almost 20 years. So I, it is a, a lot of responsibility to represent this beverage, which means so much to so many people. Yes. And, and the fact that you're bringing it down from one generation to the next to the next and in the fact that it wasn't written down previously um, is remarkable because it's maintained that consistent consistency throughout your your familiar uh, family history. Well, the interesting thing about this is, number one, there are no there. Every family believes that they that they make the best recipe. Every family thinks they make the best version. <clears throat> I make the best version. <laughs> and that is said with all of the respects to the grandmas everywhere who make it in their kitchen. Uh, lots of people make great versions of sorrel. Only I make sorrel. And the big difference is sorrel is shelf stable. It does not need to be refrigerated. You can open it, close it, leave it on your back bar for a year and it's still good to go. And that's the point that I was going to actually come back to is the fact that, you know, previously, you know, it wasn't shelf stable. How long would it be stable if, if you made it in your kitchen without um, the ingredients that were helping aid it to be to last longer on, on the shelves? It's good for about a month if you keep it in your refrigerator. But after that, you're taking the chances. It's an organic product. And without the stabilizing elements, uh, it's going to go bad. <laughs> and how many times, I mean, I think you had alluded to it, but how, how long time-wise did it take you to come to the point where you had a product that tasted as good as what you've made in the kitchen, but also was shelf-stable? So this is going to mess with your head. <laughs> From the moment I decided to make this into a thing to the moment we were on shelves, 14 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And did, did you go through uh test, like people taste testing it, like test product, product testers? There we go. <laughs> At first, I tried to pawn bad versions of the product off in my testing phase to friends and family, and they got tired of it quickly. I just poured thousands of gallons down the drain in the testing phase. Wow. 
That's that almost makes my heart ache. But I mean, I guess if it if it was you know the rejected kind, like that, there are the rejected types. I could understand you you being like, all right, this isn't good enough. I don't want people you know indulging in this. I should ask before I say my next sentence if swearing is allowed. Swearing is not allowed. Uh, That's what I thought. Yes. Thank so, you for asking. <laughs> it's a scientific method. You have to find out. Yes. You have All you can do is try something, take extensive notes, see if it works, and then try to fix what you think is a problem in the next iteration. Yes, this is true. And, you know, as a result, you came out and came out on top and offered a, a beverage that everyone has has fell in love with, including celebrities. It has been sort of universally embraced and received. Sorel in the last year and a half has become overwhelmingly the most awarded liqueur in international spirits competition. Just this year alone so far, we've won 50 gold or better awards in international competition you have and i know one of one of which was uh you know not just the awards for for competitions but you've also won awards for like through food and wine they've they named you as one of the drink innovators of the year in 2022 um i'm more than likely it's probably going to be 2023 too <laughs> Here, here's the fun thing about sorel and jack from brooklyn as a company the idea behind Sorel sat in the Caribbean for 500 years before I put it into a bottle. The idea behind Jack from Brooklyn is how many other things are out there right now that are made in some, some grandma's kitchen that have centuries of cultural significance, but then no one has figured out how to make shelf stable. How many of those things are there right now waiting for me personally to find those things, to meet those people, to tell those stories through a delicious beverage. So Sorel proves that we can do it. What we've got planned next will prove we can do it again and again and again and again. Oh, so you do have something in the works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I look forward to, know, to knowing what that is. You have to circle back to us when, uh, when that comes about because we'll <laughs> most assuredly bring you back on for that. But for the time being, um, you know, when when people when our listeners go out and buy Sorel, what what can they just have it, you know, on ice like need? How how would they use your your beverage to prepare a cocktail, a mixed drink or, you know, just have it neat on ice? So here's the beauty of hibiscus. It grows in the entire uh, narrow equator brand around the world. So you'll find it in Africa. You'll find it in the Philippines. You'll find it in Mexico. Uh, you'll find it in the Caribbean. You'll find it anywhere that's hot. And it is an absolutely delicious, refreshing drink on a hot day. However, hibiscus wants to beat you over the head with acidity. <laughs> Most people compensate for the acidity of the hibiscus by adding tons of sugar and then it's syrupy and cloying and not fun. My idea was if we added other spices that are known in the Caribbean, I could round out the profile and instead of having hibiscus be this singular beach over the head note, have it be a voice in the chorus. So there's hibiscus for flowers and fruit notes. There's cinnamon for warmth. There's ginger to almost perfectly mask the heat of the alcohol at 15%. There's clove for brightness. There's nutmeg for the dry, woody finish. And the great part about this is, A, you can drink this neat. There's no additives, no preservatives. There's no flavorants, no colorants. 
there's nothing but flavor and a little alcohol, a little sugar. So you can drink it neat over ice in the summer, maybe with a spritz, uh, but it is also delicious hot. So in the winter time, you can heat this up and it's kind of like the best mold wine you've ever had, hmm. except because there's no fruit. There are no sulfites and tannins, so there's no wine headache. Ooh. The third part about this is it's the most versatile spirit on the market. You can mix this with vodka, rum, gin, mezcal, bourbon, scotch, rye, sake, tequila, anything. And Sorel does one thing especially well, and that's mask ethanol. Mm. So if you put it with something that's been aged, a bourbon or a, a, a rum, you'll get more barrel notes and less ethanol. If you put it with an agave base, a, a mezcal or a, a, a tequila, you'll get more fruit and smoke and less ethanol. If you put it with a gin, you'll get more botanicals and less ethanol. If you put it with sake, you'll get more rice notes and, and less, less ethanol. <laughs> Sorel is a cheat code for cocktails in that people will push the flavor forward and almost perfectly mask the fact that they're drinking alcohol at all. That sounds wonderful. I almost want to take it and kind of like macerate blackberries just to oh. add. Yeah. Just to like add a some. Bramble? Huh? Like a bramble? Yes. Yes. And, you know, and just like make that it, create it and drink it. It's, it's a sipping drink. Like just enjoy it. Yes. Yes. Love this. Love it, too. So um, we because we were having so much fun talking about Sir Ellen, talking about your your brand, Jack from Brooklyn, um, we ran out of time. So let our listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find recipes, where they can find um, you and like your your beverage in person. How can they look you up? We're in 35 states right now. The website is sorelofficial.com. It has a store finder, which you'll find not just restaurants, but retailers in your area. It has cocktails, so you can figure out exactly what to do with it when you buy it. It has a direct-to-consumer store, where, so we can ship directly to you if we're not in your neighborhood yet. And it has the entire history of the beverage. It is, we've tried not to miss any notes. Again, it's a vehicle for storytelling. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs, Jackie. Have a great day. It's great to see you. It's great to see you, too. I love that smile, smiling face. <laughs> Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. And Bye. we'll be right back with after the short break. Join us on Food Farms and Chefs Radio Show, where we highlight everyone from top industry leaders to startups and the farmers who make it all possible with co-hosts Jean Blom and Amaris Pollock with original episodes that debut every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on WWDB 97.5 HD2 and at WWDBAM.com and on your smart speaker. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. I would love to introduce to all of you Chef Edward Sturgeon, who is the premier chef, I would say, at Old City Kitchen in Old City. Chef Edward, thank you for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Thank you. Good morning. Premier, premier is a strong word. I don't know if I call myself a premier or anything. But. 
So um, to, for our listeners out there, this is actually round two because I had a hit record before and it didn't, it decided, my recorder did, decided not to record everything. So if we sound a little bit like mellow, it's because we've gone through this once before. Practice round, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, let our listeners know how you got started into this business and, you know, your history. Sure. So um, I don't have a culinary degree or anything. I um, was working kind of, you know, in food adjacent. And um, my parents actually own a British import store here in Haddonfield. And there was a restaurant that became available across the street from their store. And they were like, do you want to start a restaurant? I was like, okay, let's, let's do it. I, I quit my job. I moved back in with my mom. I was living in Philly, um, but to save you know, money on rent and all that, I moved back with my mom. And then I opened the restaurant there. And I had that for, I think, I think it was 11 years before uh, we sold it to the new owners. And then in between that time, I also opened another restaurant in Philly, in, in Old City. <clears throat> and Ran that also for 11 years until I sold that. So here I am, slinging pasta, you know? Now, um, you had mentioned before that it was a little difficult because you made mistakes, obviously, since you were, you know, starting a restaurant out from scratch um, without the history or, you know, the business degree, et cetera. But um, what, <laughs> what was it like running that restaurant and then opening a second restaurant? Mm -hmm. So... You know, I mean, I definitely made a lot of mistakes, and I've seen I've seen seasoned chefs and people that do have the experience make mistakes as well. I just think it's a it's a difficult business, and um, you kind of have to be a special person to be able to to do it and manage it and run it and grow it. Um, but you know, the the first restaurant was really a, a good test for me, uh, practice run, if if you will, and then the the second restaurant we kind of did at the same time. The first restaurant, we just had like a wonderful staff there. Actually, I had a wonderful staff in both of my places. Um, and they made my job easier. But simply for the fact that I just kind of picked the right people uh, to help me and to, to be around me, really. And that made it a lot easier. It was still difficult, you know, driving over the bridge sometimes like three times a day, like back and forth um, to get both to keep one running and to get one growing, you know, so it, 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 it was a lot for, for a good two years. Uh, it was pretty much constant before it kind of like leveled out and then you were able to just kind of run the places um, as they were. So did you have a sous chef that was, you know, running the kitchen when you weren't at one of the locations? Um, I had like point people that, that were basically my go-to people, um, you know, especially in my place in Philly, um, the chef Sandy there, she kind of took over um, all of that. And it was, it, I, I actually preferred it like that because it's one person's hands on those recipes every day. Um, so it was super consistent. We also had a pastry chef here in Haddonfield who did like all of our pastries for both. So I was able to commissary some, some of the stuff. Like in Philly, we would make uh, the curry, for example. So we'd make big batches of it and then just ship it back and forth yeah it's good <laughs> yeah I said the, the curry is actually you know like it, it was like a very mild 
British style curry, but I, I got requests. I actually just catered a party over the weekend and you know, it was, it was hot. It was an outdoor summer barbecue kind of thing. And she's like, I don't care what you make, <laughs> but just make tikka masala. And I was like, you're throwing me through a loop now. Cause now, uh, you know, my menu is now what I had in mind for the menu. Now I am throwing tikka masala like right in the middle of this <laughs> light summer barbecue. I'm like, what am I going to do? <laughs> but we just did a smorgasbord. We had tikka masala and then we had feta watermelon salad and like all these like mishmash of things. And it ended up being really great. But yeah, we still get requests for it. So it's funny that you mentioned I did because the first round, like you didn't mention the curry. And like <laughs> if you said that to me, I would have been like curry now. <laughs> well, it would be like two to three hours. Well, yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, the the well, we were we were British pubs, so we kind of I mean, lent itself. You, you got to have a good, if you don't have a good homemade curry, like you, that's one of the staples. You know, you really can't mess that up. Yeah, one of the the restaurant. I digress doing this to you, but like one of the restaurants I I had gone to in Pittsburgh, PA, um, was a British pub, and it was the first time that I saw a shepherd's pie that incorporated curry in it, hmm. and I was like oh, I have to try this. I, mean, I know that it's an outlier and it's like not normal, mm-hmm. but I, for us in the U.S. Sure. Um, but I, it could very well be something that's normal in the, the you know, British Isles and, and whatnot. Um, because curry is something that's a popular thing over there. Oh, absolutely. And for good reason, it's delicious, you know. And now that I'm doing all these like pasta classes and stuff, I keep thinking about, fusion like fusion things and uh, we had some uh indian uh customers that were in the class and they actually fashioned one of the like the extra dough into like a little mini samosa and i was like how cool would it be to do like a samosa shaped kind of tortellini thing with like a curry butter sauce and then just use a traditional samosa filling in the actual pasta mm-hmm. so now I can't stop thinking about it and I'm, I, I was thinking about it before but now that kind of I saw that last week uh, them make that pasta and then we were talking about it and now and now, now you want to do it. you should get together with Chetna who also teaches there I, I talked to her, so Ch- <laughs> Chef Chetna teaches the Indian classes at uh, Old City Kitchen and I've talked to her about it before well, I was chugging her mango lassi that she gave me. It's so good. Um, and she always leaves one for me, which is, she's a saint. And, um, you know, I, we were discussing it and I'm like, this is, we have to make this happen somehow, like a fusion pasta night or something. It would be so good. It really would. So that's a good liaison into uh, what you do for Old City Kitchen. So you obviously, you know, learned on with on hands experience on how to run a kitchen, how to create these recipes. Um, what was it like learning, like as you go running a restaurant, creating these elaborate dishes? Sure. Um, you know, it's uh, it's trial and error, and it's uh, dedication to your craft, and it's experimentation, and it's trying new things, and it's also learning from other people that inspire you and I think all of those things together you just you know you're continuously learning and eating and trying things and experiencing things and that uh, all contributes to your worldview as a chef basically and I think um, you know con- continuing to be inspired really just kind of helped me um, 
hone my craft, I guess. Yeah. Now you inspire new people who take your classes to go home and create these dishes that they're going, they're going to Old City Kitchen to learn from you. Sure. So, you know, you're, you're creating experiences for people and you're creating memories. And I think food at a very base level, like you could look at it and say, well, you have to eat or you die, basically, right? Um, but it's the quality of that eating and um, the company that you keep and creating those experiences with people and memories that uh, is so important for human psyche, for our culture, um, for our future, really. And, you know, I think if you close your eyes for a second and think about a dish or a food thing that somebody made you that it's no longer with us, right? Um, you would give anything in that one second to experience that food thing again that you can never get, right? Yeah. And that is so powerful and important. And that's why food is important because you're giving people these experiences or you're giving them the skill set at least in that very short period of two hours, right? So whatever skills I can impart in between my bad jokes and stuff that something that someone can take home with them and recreate a version of that and from scratch and it's they're putting their love into it their art their expression and feeding someone else and that's such a powerful thing to me as a chef you know uh, the chefs are artists basically you know and food is their medium and you're feeding someone and they're taking the food that you made and eating it and it's becoming part of them and that's such like you know maybe this little frou-frou thought or whatever but it's it's so powerful to me that able to that I'm able to do that and show people at least how to do that on a very small scale and they can recreate these experiences at home and I think that's the fulfilling part for me as well it is and I'm you know we discussed this before but I'll mention again that you know you you have so many different items that you use in order to create these pasta experiences um do you go over the instruments? Yep. So, uh, so the classes always kind of start the same. Um, I go over uh, the format is three. It's it's always three pastas, three sauces. Everything's from scratch. There's no backups. There's nothing underneath. Um, in that two hours, we create the whole menu and then eat it as we go. I talk about all the ingredients that we're using for any particular class why they're important, what the substitutes might be for those, if they're not available, where they come from, you know, the history of why we're using them. And then the um, then I go over all of the equipment that we're using. And sometimes it might just be like a butter knife or orchetti, but uh, which is one of the reasons I, I chose it, because you don't need anything to make it to replicate it at home besides a butter knife. So it's a good intro, you know, but then there's other equipment that we use like the Cavatelli boards. And I have my great grandmothers that I continuously use for all the classes and stuff like that. So, um, I introduce all the equipment again, the history of it, why we're using it. And then we kind of get into it and make some dough. Exactly. And speaking of making dough, you, you and I discussed focaccia and the fact that you have a bowl of dough, you know, getting prepped for uh, one of your classes. So uh, I pretty much always have a bowl of dough going. (laughs) Um, There's always something fermenting over there. (laughs) Um, My focaccia was a a pandemic project for me. And I uh, just kind of uh, fell into it and 
started making it at home and now I make like maybe 10 loaves a week or more. Uh, pretty much every day I'm baking a focaccia and uh, I do it for all my classes and then I do it for my catering and then anytime I have a family event, I can't not break one, which is kind of annoying. Like I never even get a break from it. So, <laughs> so you know, I'm always baking focaccia <laughs> sometime or another. So you can come up to our, uh, our, our summer Labor Day uh, gathering in Vermont. Just bring focaccia. Focaccia there, deal. <laughs> <laughs> Make make you bring that nice crispy fluffy loaf. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it is it is good. I mean, I I kind of um, modified one of the recipes that I found and uh, put my own little spin on the procedure and stuff. And then um, I during the pandemic, it was I didn't have any like appropriate pans except for this one paella pan actually. So now because I'm superstitious all of my focaccia I bake in these overpriced paella pans only because I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to mess it up you know so um yeah I, I bake all the focaccia in the paella pans and um you know they turn out really good you're saying paella plant pans plural paella pans are huge yeah so <laughs> I have five of them now that I just kind of rotate in and out yeah so gotcha <laughs> and uh are they wrought I like yeah, they're just the traditional one, and I don't. And I now I don't know if this is just BS or whatever, but I feel like the dimpling in the bottom of the paella pan, um, you know, because paella pans have like these little tiny divots. Yeah, all, all all around the the bottom of the surface. So I feel like that. <laughs> I feel like that makes it better. <laughs> it probably does because it's like little pockets. Let's of, go with that. Yeah. You know, I have, I have them now and I'm using them, so <laughs> I'm not changing it. It makes you feel better. It, may, it makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> you might not be teaching paella classes, but you have a, a re, you know, but you do have a reason for them because you might be uh, moving forward with a focaccia class. Maybe. Yeah. We're, uh, it's something I'm thinking about. I, I teach so many classes that uh, got to throw another one in there. But um, I have some other classes as well. We're doing the Spanish tapas class, which maybe that might turn into a paella class. Who knows? At some point, I certainly have all of the equipment for it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so the focaccia is something I'm I'm thinking about putting together and working up. So. Well, in the last few minutes that we have together, um, why don't you let our listeners know some of the classes that are currently coming up um, that they can, you know, sign up for? Sure. So um, for my classes, at least, um, I do, uh, I have two different kinds of classes. So there's the like numbered series, I guess is kind of what I call it, but it's the 101 is the basic pasta making class. Um, 102 is stuffed pastas like tortellini. 103 is the dumpling class, so gnocchi. Then we do lasagna workshop. We do vegan pasta, which is super delicious, um, colorful pasta. And then I teach a regional series of pasta classes. So uh, north to south, we do Tuscany, um, Rome, the Amalfi Coast, and Sicily. And those are all traditional, uh, three traditional uh, pasta dishes from those regions. And I talk about the history uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then, um, other, there's the other, uh, chefs that teach wonderful classes there. There's Chinese takeout. There's the Indian class with, uh, chef Chetna. There's, um, pierogies, uh, there's Mexican classes. So all these other things that are going on there. 
Exactly. And sushi is going to come up again. Sushi's coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 if I can, if I can squeeze into that one, I, I will. I know you and me both. I'll like, I'll be like top hat, Charles Dickens. Yeah, right. into that the, one too. With the nose and the glasses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sushi is something that I, um, you know, I love, but I love to also leave that to the professionals. You know, like <laughs> you buy the, uh, you buy the sushi kit the one time and you do it in your house and then, and then stays in it. your drawer. Yeah. <laughs> then you have a sushi mat in your drawer for four years for no reason. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I love, uh, I love eating it and making it in a class, but I don't want to make it at home. Exactly. I have a, a ramen bowl with the like the pass through uh, chopstick holder yep. um, in my house. And I'm like, oh, one day I'm going to make ramen from. No, <laughs> no, no. I have a Korean one of the Korean stone bowls. Too. Uh-huh. I have it somewhere. It's in my basement somewhere. But, you know, I didn't throw it out. But I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this at home. Nope. I just, I just go and get it. I trust the professionals. Exactly. Know? Yeah. And it's easier. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you cook enough. <laughs> right. Every day. So um, for the last 40 seconds or so, um, let our listeners know where to find you, where to find Old City Kitchen. Sure. Um, so uh, it's my first and last name. It's at Edward Strogen is my Instagram where I post uh, food, dog and travel pics, basically. That's my that's my life. And um, an old city kitchen, so it's at old city kitchen. And anytime there's a pasta class up there, you'll be stuck with me, uh, and you can see me there. Um, I also my catering company is Crown Catering, so it's crowndining.com, um, and you can book me for events, pasta making classes in your house, uh, general catering, wine tastings, uh, you name it, uh, I'll do it. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we will be right back after the short break. To become a sponsor of Food Farms and Chefs and have your business or event promoted on two radio stations in Philadelphia that play on Tuesdays during drive time radio and on a station in New York on Fridays at 1 p.m., you can email us at foodfarmsandchefs at yahoo.com, ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com, or arpolicus at gmail.com. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. And I am so happy to be able to introduce you to Ricardo Longo, who's the co-founder and culinary and wine director of Grand Cafe L'Aquila in Philadelphia. Ricardo, thank you for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. My pleasure. And don't worry about it because everyone mispronounces the name, but it's part of the authenticity. And we have such a crazy Italian name. But yeah, it's Grand Cafe L'Aquila. L'Aquila is actually the the city that this cafe was originally from uh, in Italy in the Abruzzo region. And and that's actually part of what I'm going to jump into is your history with opening up the Grand Cafe because this was almost like an homage to your friend who who suffered um, as a result of the earthquake. So Correct. Yeah. So what what transpired between then and, and bringing the cafe here? I have a, a great job. I, I get to go to Italy, you know, four or five times a year and just study Italian cuisine, the food, the wine, culture, you know, all over the uh, peninsula. So I've traveled to all 20 regions, over 100 cities, towns. And, you know, through my through my trips, I've been able to make many great friendships with uh, with various chefs and, and known nuts. My favorite are actually the known nuts, you know, because I always feel like the original recipes from these towns are in the hands of the grandmoms of the Italian known nuns. But in any case, Stefano Biassini was one of my friends that I made on, my, on many of my trips. And he was the uh, the owner of Grand Café L'Aquila in, uh, in L'Aquila. L'Aquila is actually the capital of the Abruzzo region. It's actually, if you think of Italy, 
it, they call it the umbilical of Italy because it's dead center. It's, if you go like north, south, east, west, L'Aquila is the center of, uh, of Italy. Only about an hour from Rome, you know, not, not that far from, uh, from Rome. And uh, uh, what happened was that he had this award-winning cafe. In 2007, it actually won Cafe of the Year for the entire country of Italy. He himself is an incredible artisan. He's uh, the gelato champion of Italy, as well as an incredible coffee roaster. So tragically, in 2009, the entire city of L'Aquila was destroyed in uh, one of the worst earthquakes in the history of Italy. Uh, destroyed the entire city. Grand Cafe L'Aquila was on the main square. Of, of L'Aquila. And uh, it was also, you know, basically damaged beyond, you know, any, any kind of possibility of reopening. So being friends, we he actually came here to Philadelphia and visited me. While he was here, he sort of fell in love with the city because L'Aquila actually means eagle in Italian. And he was a rugby player and their symbol was an eagle and their colors were green and black. So the first thing he saw was like the fluffy eagles thing. He's like, <laughs> what is and I'm like, oh, that's our, that's our football team. And so he was like, he's like, oh, we got to go to a game. And, you know, so it started there. But, but you know, the thing that really sort of hooked him on Philadelphia was, you know, Philadelphia is actually an Abruzzese town. You know, when, when the original Italian immigration happened in the 1900s, you know, Italy was still a relatively new country. You know, Italy as a nation only was formed in 1861. So when that first big wave of Italians came, they didn't really identify as Italians. They, they identified more as Calabrese, Sicilian, uh, Campanian, Abruzzese, Milanese, etc. And they didn't necessarily like each other back then. You know, there was like a rivalries between the regions. And so they sort of split up. So Philadelphia was very much where the Abruzzese came as well as some Calabrian. And like Sicil- Sicily and uh, Campania went more like New Jersey, New York. Hmm. You know, that was the original vision. So, you know, if you walk through South Philly and just start talking to people and say, where are you from? Almost everybody will tell you. You know, at, at least the people, people that have been there for generations, they all are almost, I would say 80% are Abruzzese. And when, when he came, he, he heard his dialect, he started talking to people, and he just felt very at home. When that happened, you know, we started talking and saying, you know, what if, you know, rather than waiting 20 years, because we know in Italy, things <laughs> move very rebuilt. Because we've, we've been through this, unfortunately, you know, Italy does have a lot of earthquakes and natural disasters. So there's a blueprint to this. And we know that to really rebuild a city in Italy, it takes probably 20 years you know, for the city to really come back to, to, to what it was. So we said, you know, rather than, than waiting 20 years for Lockway to come back, what if we brought this piece of Italian history here to Philadelphia? You know, wouldn't that be amazing? And so that's when, when, you know, the conversation started and, uh, and it sort of went from there. And, you know, we, we decided not only to bring Grand Cafe L'Aquila, but to make it really a, a cultural immersion. So besides the cafe, we were going <clears> to <throat> basically add the restaurant component based on all my trips to Italy with all the different recipes I had and, and, and sort of do this study of Italian, you know, authentic Italian cuisine, you know, cause for, you know, I'm, I'm actually native Italian also. I came here when I was five years old and, um, you know, I sort of had a charmed, uh, upbringing because I was able to do my, um, my school year, here in the United States, but then I would spend my summers in Italy. So I really got to grow up in both cultures. And, um, you know, and it was very evident, obviously, that being Italian in America is very different than being Italian in Italy. And really, you know, being Italian in Italy is also something that you can sort of discuss because Italy really is like, is like 20 different countries. You know, every region is really very different. Uh, and then even when you when you drill down within the regions, all the towns have so much diversity because of our our unique history and culture. You know where uh, you have in all these different cities different cuisines, different wines, different languages. You know, I mean, we have um, so many different languages and dialects in Italy. Um, 
you know, my my family uh, originally is from the Campania region, and we speak a version a version of Neapolitan. And you know, if I go to like, you know, if my grandfather would go to Sicily, he literally wouldn't understand them, and they wouldn't understand him. Hmm. You know, that's how different these these dialects are. Uh, but you know, it's it's part of what makes Italy so special because you had all these influences from all these different countries and um you know which created all these different all these different cuisines and they they brought their own wines and they created all the different wines so so that's something that you know really um was something that from a young age for me traveling through Italy was something very very special that I that I noticed you know because I, I I had the gift of of traveling through Italy as a young person and seeing the differences in Italy and then seeing just a completely different world of Italian here in America, which is Italian American, you know, which is very different than the Italian in, in Italy. Yeah. Uh, so we said, let's let's not only bring Grand Cafe L'Aquila here, but let's make it a, a cultural study on on Italy. So so what what we decided to do first of all was have the entire place uh, designed and built in Italy because one of the things that was really cool about the original Grand Cafe L'Aquila in Abruzzo was that it was one of the first cafes that went modern in style. You know, because when you go back, you know, some years in Italy, the cafes all had that sort of old school kind of look to them. And Grand Cafe L'Aquila actually was a very had a very modern look, you know, for for cafes at that time. Uh, so we 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 brought in the same architect that designed the original one in L'Aquila. We flew him here to Philadelphia, and we told him like, "Don't even look out your taxi window. Mentally, you're still in Italy, and you're going to design this as if you're in Italy." You know. And so, so he, uh, you know, basically designed the whole place and, uh, the, the firms there, a lot of them are design built. So we actually had this place not only designed, but also built in Italy. And so when you walk into this place, it's literally a made in Italy experience because the whole place was made in Italy and sent over here on 18 containers. I was about uh, to ask it, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so literally everything from the whole bar to the, the chairs were handmade. I mean, everything, everything you see, everything on the walls. It was uh, it was a, a made in Italy uh, project. You know, we had, we had a few things that we salvaged from the uh, original Grand Cafe L'Aquila, like the original sign is actually in the, on the first floor. And, and and you know, fortunately, Stefano's lab was actually in a different location that survived the earthquake. So we were able to bring his original uh you know, coffee roaster and the gelato equipment and all that stuff. You know, we just had to modify all the electric to make it work here in, in the United States. Um, but, uh, you know, what we decided to do was have this be an Italian experience on, on many different levels. So, you know, when you when you walk in, the first thing is that you, you feel like you're in Italy because it is a made-in-Italy design. It's very Italian. It, it's something that, you know, uh, puts you in that place. We also have many native Italians that work here. That was an important part for us. So we recruited Italians that lived here in the United States that spoke Italian that lived here. And so that, you know, a good portion of our staff is also Italian. So they're able to, to, to transmit, um, the, the culture. Uh, we have a, um, an Italian bar on the first level. And, you know, in Italy, a bar is an organic thing that, that evolves during the day. So in the morning, in the morning, it's about, um, espresso, cappuccino, cornetti, you know, the Italian kind of breakfast. And then we, it sort of moves into, you know, a lunch kind of thing where you have panini, light bites, uh, and then it slowly moves into the aperitivo, you know, which basically obviously is all your cocktails, uh, spritzes, wines, um, Italian beers. Uh, 
things like that. We have a, a dining room upstairs, which, you know, we have one menu which features uh, authentic Italian classics from around Italy, uh, as well as obviously we have some um, specialties that Stefano brought directly from L'Aquila. But then what we're really known for are these weekly menus that every week we sort of take our, our guests on this trip to different cities in Italy where, where they're able to experience the authentic food, the authentic wine. Uh, we also, uh, right now we're on summer break, but starting in the fall, we have um, a culture school where on Saturdays, our guests can also immerse uh, with our partners, which are America Italy Society on education, where uh, we'll have a native Italian talk about this city and the culture. And as they're talking about it, we bring the food and wine to the customers. And, and, and what they realize is that the history of these cities are basically told through the food, through this evolution of the different people that pass through these towns, what they brought and uh, you know the, the the wines that they brought, or maybe the wines that were indigenous to the area, and uh, and it's really uh, a, a special special experience. Uh, so we also have the um, the school, and then we also uh, on our first level have a um, a store which features um, products of Italian excellence from all twenty regions of Italy. Um, so we sort of select. Uh, products, you know, because Italy has a, a, an incredible terroir. You know, we have it's it's a very unique place because it's a it's a very long peninsula that's surrounded by these seas, and then you have mountains basically going through the center of it. So you have these cool winds coming down from the mountains and hills. You have warm winds coming from from uh, the seas. You have also many lakes that that also uh, give give a, a special terroir. Uh, you know, I think something like 75% of the country is either hill or mountain. Um, so in the end, you have a territory which is just incredibly unique and produces just incredible agriculture, uh, incredible products that, that cannot be duplicated anywhere else in the world. Um, it, it's funny because the other day we were trying hazelnuts from um, from the, the Longue in Piedmont, and they are the, the flavor is just something that blows your mind. And when you try it against a California hazelnut, which is fine, you, you realize that uh, that our hazelnuts here in California really don't have much flavor. But you don't you don't realize it until you try a Lange, um hazelnut. And, you know, the, the, the structure of the hazelnut is the same. It's just the, the territory. The territory gives this this extra flavor. So it's um, you know, and there's there's millions of examples like it. And um, you know, Stefano and his gelato uses a lot of these products. He actually uses Longue hazelnuts um, in his gelato. You know, our best selling gelato is the pistachio, which we source from Sicily and specifically from the area around Mount Etna. Which, if you try those pistachios again, they're you know, uh, I would say between that and maybe Iran. Iran has an area that has incredible pistachios. Those are the two best in the world and because of because of the territory so um so you know we we have a lot of fun um basically um expounding this italian culture educating our guests and uh, having these italian experiences with them and i want to um, there's so many things that you went over that i was like oh i wanted to mention that too so you you were kind of going over like everything that i mentally wanted to ask you <laughs> questions for but um i do want to specifically like center my attention on the fact that you are importing these ingredients and 
the nutrients right. and, and whatnot from the different regions of Italy is what, like the nutrients in the soil is what mm-hmm. is really infusing these vet, these um, produce, the nuts, the produce, the, it, and yeah, and everything that you, you import from over there. And also the flour, because the flour is also important when you're making, you know, breads and, and pastas for your, your Northern, you know, regions where I know that in Italy, you know, every, where you're located kind of influences what, what type of Italian, you know, base that you're going to be consuming your cuisine. Um, because I know when you're down at the the end of it <laughs> where, and I, I apologize for anybody who's, you know, including yourself, who's um, from Italy originally, but the boot, when you're at the bottom of the boot, when you're in the Mediterranean Sea, you eat a lot of seafood and lighter fare and just healthier stuff. So, um, yeah, so I know that, that that is a huge base for, you know, some of the foods and the cuisines that you bring on. But, um, yeah. Yeah, and everything is very seasonal in Italy, you know. So that's one of the things. Like, we're, we're very used to having our supermarkets here with everything we want year-round. But in Italy, that's not really the case. They're, they're very much into the products and the seasons. So, you know, there'll be parts of Italy where, you know, there might be things that you like, but you're only going to find them three or four months a year. And then they stop. Yeah. You know? And then, and, uh, which, which, which is the way historically, you know, things were. That's the way that's the way it used to be before we sort of got this uh, this huge modern system of, of food production. Yeah. And I, I've traveled throughout Europe a, a few times. And whenever, you know, we I've stayed in, in a stationary, you know, place, there's always, mm-hmm. you know, a refrigerator going shopping. You you buy you go grocery shopping daily. You don't go grocery shopping once a week or whatever and buy in bulk. You buy what you need, you know, that day or that day in the next morning. Like it, and it's still very common in Italy um, to, you know, buy your meat from the butcher to go um, to a fishmonger for, for, for your fish, to go to the, you know, a cheese producer to get all your different cheese and, and dairy and on and on and on, you know, the baker for your bread. And, and in the end, I mean, these are specialists, right? These are guys that, that this is all they do. Yeah. And, and they do it really well. So, so, you know, you eat on a different level, you know, cause you have, you have, you have, um, you have professionals that many times have been doing this for generations and they, and they have passion for what they do. So they, they really care. So, uh, you know, you go in there, you have conversations with them. They want to educate you on, on the different products and, and it really just elevates everything, you know, because, you know, getting back to that discussion of how special those Italian ingredients are because of the, the terroir, um, you know, that, that's sort of expounded in how the true Italian cuisine is. And, and that is that most of these classic Italian dishes are three or four ingredients because they don't really want more than that because they want to show off how incredible these ingredients are. Because once you start layering too many things in a dish, you start losing it. You know, you start getting palate confusion and uh, you sort of lose the excellence of these uh, of these dishes. You I know, like my, my favorite example is sort of like the, the classic panini in Italy. You know, like I remember as a kid, my favorite panino was just like a mortadella sandwich, you know, be like an Italian baguette with just mortadella and like nothing else. Because the, the mortadella there, the IGP Bologna mortadella, it's like it's like a perfume. I mean, the the the, the Ricardo. The, the, I yes. I apologize because I would love to continue to get into that, but um, unfortunately, we ran out of time. So, oh wow, <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so can you let us let our listeners know where to find yourself in the Grand sure. Cafe? 
Absolutely. So we're located at 1716 Chestnut Street in Philadelphia, in the center of, of uh, 17th and Chestnut. And our products, we have, we have over 500 products of Italian excellence that are on our online store that they can find at grandcafelaquila.com. And they can also make reservations for the restaurant directly from our website. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs, Ricardo. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And we will be right back next week with an all new segment and all new show. So tune in to Food Farms and Chefs radio show. To listen to the rest of Food Farms and Chefs, tune your HD radio to 97.5 WPEN HD2 or stream live from WWDBAM.com.